Uh, I'm not going to read the passage. It's sort of long, so we're going to go through it as we go through the sermon. Uh, If you have that open, that would be great. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to this amazing story of entering the promised land, a story that's very old but remarkably current. We pray that we would learn its lessons and make them part of our lives. Thank you that today, once again, we're learning from Joshua. Help us to hear his words and understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 3 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So what makes a good leader? That question was asked by the Army War College in a study of highly regarded major generals who served in Iraq. And subordinates had rated uh, these major generals, that's two stars, uh, they rated them anonymously. And the responses of what makes a good leader were in order of importance, number one, keeps cool under pressure. Number two, clearly explains mission standards and priorities. Number three, sees the big picture, provides context and perspective. And number four, makes tough sound decisions on time. And one of the study's authors, General Walter Omer, now retired, said one thing we found, it's still easier to teach technical skills than to teach people how to gain trust and build teams. He noted many, good, uh, many key behaviors are learned by example. So one of the uh, results of the study was that good leaders tend to produce good leaders. Now, all of those points don't apply to our passage today, but one of them does. We need the big picture. We need to understand the context so that we'll have the proper perspective of what's really going on. Now, let me give you an example of this. About 10 years ago, there was an ad on TV, and it started like this. It showed a woman sitting in a car, and she's in the car. She's minding her own business, and suddenly this man comes out of the blue, rips the car door open, grabs her, and pulls her out of the car roughly, and it looks like uh, he's attacking her, and you sort of look on in horror, and then the camera pulls back, and you see that the car is on fire. And the woman didn't know it. And the man wasn't assaulting the woman. He was rescuing her. And the ad finishes by saying, you need the bigger picture. Channel 10 News gives you the bigger picture. Now, the ad makes a good point. We need to have the bigger picture. And in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel need to have the bigger picture. As they look in the direction of the Jordan River, knowing they have to cross it, knowing that once they cross it, they're going to face cities and people who are big and powerful, and the people of Israel are easily overwhelmed and afraid. The bigger picture, however, is that the Lord had promised the Israelites that they would enter the land. He promised Joshua, end of Joshua 1 verse 5, I will not leave you or forsake you. God would do all that he said he would do. That's the bigger picture. God is faithful and in control. You need to have 
the bigger picture. Now, in the everyday situations we face in our own lives, how can we make sure that we have the bigger picture? What does it mean to have the bigger picture in life? What does it mean to have the bigger picture of God and this world? And how does having the bigger picture affect how we live today? That's what we're looking at this morning as we look at Joshua 3, which tells the story of the crossing of the Jordan River. We can begin by asking an important question. Why does this river matter so much? The answer is the Jordan River serves as a key boundary marker. The people of God have to cross the river in order to enter the promised land. In fact, that's the very first thing that God said to Joshua back in chapter 1, verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. And chapter 3 now brings us to the actual event of that crossing and its significance for Israel. But it all starts with keeping a faithful distance. If you're following along in the sermon outline, uh, that you can get that separately on our website. It also comes up now as part of the bulletin if you use the QR code. You'll see faithful distance, verses 1 through 6. So behind the initial matter-of-fact description, we're meant to sense this sort of anticipation and excitement that's flowing through the camp, starting at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet, verse 4, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So, the people of God have spent some considerable amount of time at Shittim, and now at last they're on the move, moving towards the river. But there's no word yet on how it's going to be crossed. And we see there's a three-day pause in verse 2. And I think part of it is they come to the river and they stop for three days. And I think that started to allow the impossibility from a human point of view of what's about to happen to sink in. I mean, this kind of delay frequently has a way of refining and deepening our faith. So we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that the river presents. Now, near the end of the chapter, verse 15, there's a parenthetical comment, as though it's just merely incidental, about this situation. It actually means it has a huge impact on him. It says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. 
This isn't a small babbling brook in which to paddle. It is a fast-flowing, swirling flood, probably between 10 and 12 feet deep at this point. Fording the river or swimming across are out of the question. Rafts are an impossibility, and engineering has yet been able to build bridges. And remember, too, this is the whole nation of Israel. <coughs> Wives, children, animals, baggage, everything they got. With no way to cross this swollen river. Estimates are anywhere between half a million and two million people, depending on which commentary you look at. Either way, it's a lot of people. But they're on the move because God said move. Command had been given in chapter 1. As soon as the spies return in chapter 2, Joshua begins to execute his orders from God. They don't know how it's going to happen. But they take the next step to obey what God said and leave the outcome to him. It's a great lesson on, uh, for us on how to live in trust and obedience. And then they get instructions in verse 3. The focal point is to be on the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the Lord's presence among his people. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned for the first time here in the book of Joshua. And it's important, it's mentioned nine more times just in this chapter. The Ark of the Covenant meets us at every turn, reminding us that it's God himself who leads his people into Canaan. This whole campaign is God's work. The Israelites, even though they're an active part of the story, are primarily spectators to what God is doing. And yes, God's ark is carried by the Levitical priests, but the one whose presence it symbolizes is the one who's giving the instructions. And Israel's responsibility is to follow. Again, this gives us another continuing principle for fellowship with God. It's not our role to second-guess what God will do any more than it's our role to argue about how he should do it. It's our responsibility to follow God. Faith gathers up all our cares and anxieties and the knowledge that he holds our future and every step ahead of us, and faith leaves it all to God. We must never give up what we do know because of what we don't know. Let me say that again. We must never give up what we do know because of what we don't know. So even though we don't know how God's faithfulness will be revealed or how he will order our circumstances, what we do know is that he is our God committed to us by his unbreakable covenant promise and his love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. Now, in verses 4 through 6, our attention is drawn to three specific ingredients of their faithful waiting on God. The first is their submission to his instructions, which means looking to the ark, which also means not looking at the river. Within this gold-covered ark are the tablets of the law the covenant that God had made with his people, the visible sign of the very terms on which God lives in the midst of his people. And they have to keep their distance for two reasons. First, for reasons of visibility. Just they need to be far enough back so that everybody can see the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. 
but also as a reminder that God is holy and that sinners cannot freely come into his presence. Now this instruction to keep 2,000 cubits, roughly 1,000 yards or about half a mile, to keep that far away from the ark is fascinating. It speaks of the need of separateness between the people and a holy God. And there's precedent uh, for that, for these people. The people are commanded to never touch the ark. Even the priests who carry it have poles that sort of slide uh, through the sides, and they carry the poles. Even the priests are not allowed to touch the ark. They are never to treat the things of God lightly. The ark is a holy piece of furniture from the tabernacle. It wasn't to be treated carelessly. And there's an implication for us in that today. Yes, God is our Father, but we dare not treat him casually. See, there's two aspects to God's nature, both of which we see in Joshua repeatedly. His close, comforting presence and his awesome, fearsome glory. And they're kept generally in a healthy balance in the Bible. But if truth be told, we love the nearness, the imminence of the Lord, symbolized by his presence with us. We tend not to be as fond of the distance we need to maintain or recognizing the transcendence of God, which means he is wholly other, high above us. And I think the transcendence of God is in danger of being forgotten in some wings of the church today. His holiness requires distance from his people, both as a sign of reverence and also for the protection of those who aren't holy. This is not a God to be casually approached. The Israelites, as they kept a proper reverent distance from the Ark of the Covenant, would be shown which way they should walk, both physically and spiritually. Also important is this logistical issue of staying far enough away from the ark so it could be seen as it was held up by the Levites during the crossing of the Jordan. The ark is to lead the way across the river and into the land, and therefore the eyes of the people are to be focused on the presence of God and not on what are incredibly dangerous circumstances as they cross the Jordan River. So that's the first thing that we see. They're to focus on the presence of God. Second, they're to consecrate themselves. To consecrate, verse 5, to consecrate means to set apart as holy. Usually this involves a washing garments as well as a renewed dependence on God. In the Bible, this imagery of washing and putting on fresh clothes symbolizes a new beginning with the Lord. Sin is a picture of being defiled, and God has to cleanse us before we can truly follow him. There's a reason we have a confession of sin and assurance of pardon in every service. You think about the, how the Bible presents this. If you remember in Genesis when Jacob made a new beginning with the Lord and returned to Bethel, he and his entire family washed themselves and changed their garments. After King David confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he bathed and changed his clothes. Then he went and worshipped God. But if you think about it, here's the people 
this massive amount of people. They're on the banks of the Jordan River. They're waiting for the Ark of the Covenant to be paraded before them and then to enter into the river, and they're told to consecrate themselves. They're not being commissioned to implement a new military strategy. They're getting ready for warfare. They're going to conquer the promised land. They got, there's people there. They have to conquer and overcome. They know what they're getting into. But they don't come away armed with the latest weapons. Instead, they're called to consecrate themselves. That's kind of weird. In the midst of preparing for warfare, they're commissioned for worship. Why? Because the people of God, the children of Israel, are being prepared for a display of God's mighty power. Now, most of this assembly have only heard stories of the crossing of the Red Sea. All the people who crossed the Red Sea some 40 years ago, the majority of them have died. Any of those folks that were children or were under roughly 20 years old at that time, they're still alive. But they're all my age now. They're all in their 60s and 70s. But a lot of them wouldn't remember it, especially if they were little kids uh, at the time. So they've heard for 40 years of the crossing of the Red Sea. But now they have to prepare for their own encounter with God. They have to consecrate themselves. Third, verse 6, there has to be specific obedience. And the priests exemplify this. They do what Joshua tells them to do. There is a sanctity and a deliberation about the whole process that's often lacking in our contemporary Christian lives. We don't want to wait. We often uh, don't want to set our lives apart to the Lord for his use. We don't want to allow any sort of distance. Because we imagine, you know, we already know the way. We don't need step-by-step guidance. But look again at verse 5. Joshua calls them to be consecrated, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The NIV translates that as amazing things. Literally, they're things to be astounded at. All of this helps us to catch the sense of awe as God prepares a way through the Jordan for his people. This is a major event in Israel's story. It's seen in the promise given to Abraham so long ago, all the way back in Genesis 12, to your offspring I will give this land. And now they're moving to its fulfillment. It is a major stepping stone in salvation history as the next stage in God's covenant relationship with Israel is swinging into action. Whatever we learn from this, we must never lose sight of the wonder of God's mighty acts and never stop remembering them and proclaiming them. These people are about to have a totally new experience. Verse 4 reminds them, you have not passed this way before. So they have to be dedicated to God in submission, They're following about a half a mile back with their eyes focused on the gold-covered ark. But you kind of have to stop and wonder, why are they so willing to trust him like this? Why are they so willing to consecrate themselves for what looks to be an impossible task? And how come the fear of 40 years ago that turned the people away isn't stopping them this time? 
I think it simply comes down to the possession of faithful knowledge. Faithful knowledge. Verses 7 to 13. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. If you remember back in the Exodus, Moses led the nation through the Red Sea. The event is the miracle God used to exalt Moses before the people. And thus the people were able to see that he really was the servant of the Lord and they can trust and follow him. Exodus 14, Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now God is doing the exact same thing for Joshua. He's reminding the people that he was with Joshua just as he had been with Moses. And both Moses and Joshua received their authority from the Lord before the miracles occurred. But the miracles give them spiritual authority before the people. The miracles serve as confirmation that God's at work in their lives. And as believers, we have a right to expect that our spiritual leaders exhibit the power and presence of God at work in them and through them. But this is a difficult issue. Following spiritual leaders is difficult. I think all of us struggle with uh, who it is we're to follow. Now, over the years, I've had countless conversations with people about this very issue. I've reminded them that the pastors and elders of the church are given responsibility to set a godly example of following Christ. But the church doesn't belong to the pastors and elders. It belongs to Jesus. As church leaders, we have feet of clay. We are going to disappoint people individually and collectively as we have already done and will probably do again. Christ is the only one who won't let you down. Only Christ is capable of leading us through the difficult waters. That's why we need to know him. That's why we need to know his word. That's why obedience to that word is so critical. We must never give up what we do know because of what we don't know. Now look at this text. Put yourself in the place of the priests. The first word they hear, verse 8. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. 
And they hear Joshua say, you follow the priests into the river. You watch them stand there in the water. This is a raging river at flood stage. The suspense has to be intense. And Joshua has told the priests and the people what to do, giving them the command of the Lord. He doesn't have to pump himself up. He doesn't have to build up his uh, stature in the eyes of the people. He's convinced God's going to take care of that. So he glorifies God instead. He focuses on God's gracious blessing that they could expect to receive. And true spiritual leadership focuses the eyes of God's people on the Lord and on his greatness, not on themselves. Now, most of what Joshua says to the people comes from two places. The last words Moses said when he installed Joshua back in Deuteronomy 31, and the words that God had directly said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. And so Joshua is not an innovator. He's not bringing a new word from the Lord. He's not giving the people a religious uh, pep talk to get them to follow. He's just reminded the people of the promises of God. And he's encouraged them to trust and obey. And it's only at the end of his instructions does he reveal how God's going to do this. Verse 13, he describes the nature of this forthcoming wonder. He says, as soon as the priest's feet shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. For the first time, we, the readers, are given a glimpse of what God's about to do. And it's pretty awesome. By definition, all miracles are extraordinary. But this is so beyond human ability and comprehension, it can have no explanation except divine power. The fact that it's announced in advance before it happens is just confirmation of its divine origin. There's nothing to indicate a coincidence there's uh, no natural causes in the text. There's books out there who try to find a, a scientific or natural cause for every miracle in the Bible. They tend to skip over this one. Um, trying to imagine the scene is stretching. But trying to account for it in human terms is virtually impossible. We should certainly not underestimate the courage and the faith of the priests as they advance towards the river carrying the ark. The banks have been submerged by this overflowing river. They could easily lose their footing and stumble in the dark like every river. It has banks that go down. They're carrying this big heavy ark walking downhill into the water. It's, you think about when you've walked into a river and how muddy and murky it is. And it's going to be like that. Because it's flood stage, it's over the grass, it's slippery. They could easily lose their footing and be swept away by the current. But the greater the obstacles that faith encounters, the greater the victory that comes from continuing to act in trust and obedience. And these verses record these facts so there can be no doubt as to what actually took place. It's a demonstration of faithful obedience. Verses 14 through 17, faithful obedience. Obedience. Look at these verses. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, 
and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Sarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. That's all one sentence. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So pressing on in faith and obedience, the priests reached the river. Now, think about this for a minute. These people have been wandering around in the desert for the past 40 years. Did they know how to swim? Not a lot of swimming lessons being given out in the desert. But as soon as the priests take the next step of obedience and put their feet in the water, the promised miracle occurs exactly as predicted. And the ark goes into the river, verse 17, and the priests stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. This miracle happened after they obeyed, not before. If the priests hadn't stepped into that flowing current of water, no one would have crossed that day. Only after they obeyed did the water back up. I mean, nothing has changed. The river is still flooding. Now, this is not the Jordan River that you would see if you went over there uh, today. Today, the Jordan River more resembles Goose Creek. But that's due to modern hydroelectric dams that have been built upriver and using the water of the river to irrigate the whole Rift Valley uh, there in Israel. So the Jordan River today is much, much smaller uh, than it would have been several thousand years ago. Same river, same name, two very different situations. Back then, the Jordan was about 100 feet wide most of the year. But during the spring flood season, it overflowed its banks. It reached in some places up to a mile wide. And if you think about it, God could have brought them over during the dry season, not during the flood season. He could have brought them to a different place where the forests would have been comparatively shallow. But God chose the most improbable time and unlikely location to cross over because his deeper purpose is to develop the people's trust in him. How exactly does this miracle happen? I don't know. I only know what it says. I think the best explanation comes in verse 11 where Joshua calls God the Lord of all the earth. That's the first time this phrase is used in the entire Bible. It's a statement of God's absolute sovereignty. When the creator speaks, the river rolls up. It's as simple as that. They're able to enter the land because of the miracle, and it was designed to teach them this essential principle that it's only by the same divine power of their covenant God that the whole land will be conquered and become their possession. They're given a demonstration of God's power before they're to take the promised land. So they will trust that they actually can take the promised land. It emphasizes too, I think, 
the simple effectiveness of God's intervention. And if you look at the words, it says twice they passed over on dry ground. The bed of the Jordan is so dry and firm, the priest can stand in the middle of it without slipping and falling. And all the people, even the elderly and the infirm and the parents carrying infants, can cross safely. When God acts, he acts effectively. Now, back in Exodus chapters 14 and 15, make it clear on the day of crossing over the Red Sea, when Moses lifted up his staff, the wind began to blow and the wind parted the waters. And when he lowered his staff, uh, the waters flowed back and drowned the Egyptian army. But when Israel crosses the Jordan River, it's not the obedient arm of the leader that brings about the miracle, but the obedient feet of the nation. The word nation at the end of verse 17 is a significant word. It describes the unity of the 12 tribes. It speaks of a community that's united. These people don't cross over as isolated individuals. They're all together trusting the Lord in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. What are the implications for the 21st century Christian? We have to be really careful here because this can become a dangerous lesson. You know how many sermons are out there on how to cross your uncrossable river? And yes, they mean well. But no, that is not what this passage is about. Yes, God can and does perform miracles. Cutting off the water is one of three miracles in the book of Joshua. But don't presume that your particular set of difficulties will get rolled up by divine intervention. The fact that God can do the impossible does not necessarily mean that he will do the impossible. There is no unconditional promise here that will be valid for all God's people and all the challenges of life in a fallen world. After the Israelites cross the Jordan, they generally have to use normal human means and methods to carry on with their lives. This particular miracle never reoccurs for these people. In their experience, it remained a singular, amazing, one-time miracle event. And the danger is so often we read the Old Testament carelessly, and then we suffer disappointment. For example, we rush to interpret this story by looking for some point of similarity with our present circumstances. Life will always present difficulties, and sometimes they seem unsolvable, like a river in full flood barring our way to the fulfillment that we tell ourselves must be God's best for us. And so we become the children of Israel in our version of the story, and we put ourselves in their sandals on the bank of our river, claiming that God will miraculously intervene to remove the impossible barrier. But then he doesn't. And we're forced to ask, why? Perhaps I'm not consecrated enough. Perhaps my obedience isn't impressive enough. Maybe he really isn't interested in me after all. Maybe the promises have no real personal benefits. 
You can see sort of the downward spiral that results from this misunderstanding, all because we tried to draw a line directly from a unique salvation history event in Israel to our everyday individual experience, and it's the wrong line to draw. The question we should be asking when we read an Old Testament narrative like this is what is God teaching us here about God? That's the direct line from the biblical text to our lives. Because whatever God reveals of himself in the narrative remains true for us today. His character is eternal and unchanging. So we need to allow the story to instruct us about God before we rush to put ourselves in the picture. The Bible is God's book about God before it is God's book about us. It is not, therefore, a measure of our faith as to whether or not we can convince ourselves that God will part the waters of our Jordan by some divine intervention. That may not be his purpose for us at all. Now, New Testament promises clearly intended for God's people at all times, all places, should be claimed in faithful prayer, expecting the Lord to be faithful to his word. But we're not free to construct promises of miraculous intervention for ourselves out of Joshua 3. So then what does it have to say to us? Well, the answer is plenty. It teaches us that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he's sovereign over time and eternity, that he works all things according to the purpose of his will, and all things includes every circumstance of our life. I mean, we always use Romans 8.28 to make that point. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we fail to see the verse in its immediate context because we don't also read it with verse 29 to see what his purpose actually is. We tend to assume it must be for our own well-being and our own happiness as his dearly loved children. But the next verse shows us it's far richer, it's far deeper than that. Because verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. His purpose is to restore the defaced image of God in us. His redeemed people to make us more and more like Jesus. That's how we're to face our crises and difficulties and adversities to see them as part of this transformation process that God knows we need to become increasingly dependent on him and so to produce the fruit of the Spirit uh, within us. Seeing our lives in that perspective, Joshua 3 becomes immensely helpful and strengthening to our faith, both for our understanding of God's purposes and our confidence in his wisdom and his ability to bring his purposes in our lives to a glorious conclusion. It also changes our perspective on the world around us. In our moment in, in time, that we see our lives caught up in something greater than our immediate circumstances or our immediate needs we're part of the universal purposes of the sovereign lord as he carries out his plan by which his eternal kingdom will be first revealed and then established yes he is the god of the impossible as this chapter reveals 
But the tide of the anti-God forces may appear to be in full flood in our time and place, but it's still not outside of God's control. The same is true uh, for the overwhelming problems that can impact any congregation of God's people, including this one, or any individual believer, including you. He still makes a way through for those who consecrate themselves to him in trust and obedience. And I think sometimes our problem is we're too busy looking for wood to build a raft, or we're too busy planning on our bridge building. And we've lost sight of the God who does amazing things. Or we're too impatient to wait for his will and his way. But the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's mercy and faithfulness, still leads us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as Hebrews 13.5 says, quoting Joshua 1.5, has promised never to leave us or forsake us. In the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great 19th century Baptist preacher in London, he wrote, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day, reference to Pilgrim's Progress. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It is my business as best as I can to kill dragons and to cut off giants' heads and to lead on the timid and trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have a heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many times have I had to part with there? How many people have I had to part with there? I have stood on the brink, the banks of the river, the verge of the river, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream as they head to the celestial city. There's a reason when... People die, we talk about them crossing over. And in particular, crossing over to the other side of the Jordan. We sing about it. We may not think about it, but we sing about it. Think of the, we've sung this so many times. We sang it last month. That great hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And if you remember, that hymn ends, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Like the priests in the Jordan, Jesus, as our great high priest, will insert himself into the raging torrent of God's wrath so that we, as the people of God, will walk through on dry ground, singing in the midst of our crossing over and entering into the promised land unscathed. Because he conquered death and hell, we land safe on Canaan's side. And that's good news. Thank God for that. Do that now. After a moment, I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times we are not strong in faith. We are not courageous in faithfulness. There are times when we look at the world and the land is still frightening. There's still big rivers to cross. There's still people who are big and scary who stand against us. Forgive us for demanding relief from our troubles when you're busy using those troubles to transform us. Forgive us for our failure to obey your word. Forgive us for uh, letting what we don't know overwhelm that sure and certain word that we do know. Forgive us for being afraid of following you. And work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua, the protege of Moses as he brings us this eyewitness account of entering the promised land. Help us to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Joshua, draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the one who lands us safe on Canaan's side, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.